You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church in Midlothian, Texas. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, visit Stonegate-Church.com. All right, great to see you this morning. Mark chapter 7 is where you're going to need to be, and it's going to take us just a few minutes to get there, though, so hang tight. Mark chapter 7. Um, okay, so we're starting a series that, that kind of works through how God, through the gospel, works change in our lives. So let me just start out by giving um, three or four reasons why I think this, this series is important for us, um, for us to kind of start to live in and, and to understand and to kind of grab. So, so let me give four reasons. Number one, reason number one, change is God's agenda and change is for God's glory. So I, I want you to see this, that God's agenda for your life is bigger than saving you from something. God also has an agenda to save you to something. See the difference there? May we grab in that, that it's not just God saving you from the penalty of sin, it's also God rescuing you from the present power of sin. Okay, this is what we're talking about. Like, maybe you could take like in Ephesians chapter 2, 8 and 9. Popular verses, kind of coffee cup verses. For it's by faith that we're saved, by grace alone through faith that we're saved. It's not our own doing, it's the gift of God. This is what God is working in us. This is what he's saving us from. He's saving us from the penalty of our sin. That's what it's talking about in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. It's, it's saved in the past tense from the penalty of our sin. This is what theologians call justification. It's a courtroom type of a word where, where what we're talking about there when we say save from the penalty of your sin is if you could imagine God as the just judge and us coming in as rebellious sinners. We are caught red-handed. I, we're caught, I mean, treason is, is like all over our face. We have been caught red-handed in our rebellion, trying to usurp the rightful rule and good rule of, of God in our life. So, so we're caught red-handed. God has slammed down the, the penalty for our sin. It's death. That's your, that's your penalty. This is the judgment for your sin. You are going to die for it. But instead of us being marched out of the room to our judgment, Christ is marched out for us. That, that's justification. You're, you're saved from the penalty of your sin. On the cross, Jesus absorbed the wrath of God, our penalty. On the cross, Jesus got our penalty. And because of the cross, we got his perfection. Okay, so this is what we're saved from. But, but God has a bigger agenda than saving you from something. He's also saving you to himself. Like justification is God loves you right where you are. Sanctification is God loves you too much to leave you there. So, so as soon as we step across the line of faith, we're justified. We're made right with God. God has saved us from the past penalty of our sin. As soon as that moment happens, now we begin this gradual and grueling process of becoming like Jesus, right? And can we all agree that it's gradual and it's grueling? I mean, it is difficult, isn't it? It is, it is hard. I mean, it feels like we're, we're making no progress all the time. I mean, th- this is what sanctification is. It's this gradual and grueling process of God making us like Jesus, Okay, now I want to show you this. I want you to see God's agenda for your life. This is going to be another really popular passage for you, especially the first uh, part of this. And we talk about this a lot in here. Romans 8.28 goes like this. And we know that for those who love God and are called according to his purpose, like we, we know that those people that love God, all things work together for good. Okay, so, so we know that God's working all things for good. Now, here's the question that you need to be able to answer. What is your good? I mean, it's good for you, God is giving me a, a new home. It's good for me, God's given me the promotion. Good for me, is God giving me a, a better pay. Is that good for me? 
Is this what God is talking about when he says good? Verse 29 answers the good question. Here's what God means when he says that he is literally harnessing everything in your life for your good. This is what he's producing in you. This is your good. For, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. And then listen to this last phrase, to what? To be conformed to the image of his son. This is what God is working in you. This is God's agenda for you. This is what God is up to in your life. If you are a son or daughter of God, this is what God is doing. This is it. It is inevitable. You, you could kind of suppress it, but if you're a son or daughter of God, you can't stop it. This is what God is doing in us. It's this gradual and grueling process called sanctification. And listen, that is all for his glory. God doesn't change you so at the end of the day, you can beat your chest and say, look at what I have done with my life. That's not why God changes us. God changes us so at the end of the day, we can fall on our knees and say, this is what God has done in my life. See, it's God's agenda and it's for God's glory. Okay, now let me give you the next one here. Reason number two is that change is wanted and change is needed. Let's take the wanted part of this first. Change is wanted in our culture. I mean, it's a wanted phenomenon. There is a general awareness in the hearts of people that something is wrong and something needs to be fixed. This is why when you go to Barnes & Noble, one of the biggest sections you're going to see there is called self-help. That's the reason. You're getting that. The reason there's a self-help section is because there's a general awareness in people that something needs help, that something is broken. That this is why. Okay, now let me just give you this statistic real quick, just so you can grab that how deep this awareness runs in all of our hearts. In 2009, in the United States, the self-help market was $10.53 billion. That's how badly people know and want change. That's how badly people, that, that's how aware people are of something is broken, and this is how bad people want to fix it. So there's a general awareness that people want change. But listen, it's, it's bigger than just us wanting change. We need change. Like you and I in this room today are in desperate need of change. I, if we could just throw your life story up on this screen, and we'll just say your last week, right? It would probably be pretty embarrassing for most of us. Pretty awkward for somebody to watch that, right? I just take all the, if, if we did just the clips of your lowlights over the last week, it would not be good for us. We are in need of change. I, people in this room this morning, some of our marriages are on the verge of collapse. Some of us don't even know it and they are. That, that many of us are addicted to the approval of people. Many of us are addicted to, to the pleasure of pornography. That frustration and anger and impatience characterize our life. Gluttony is a characteristic of us. It's so normal, we don't even consider it a sin anymore, right? That we're looking so badly for something to kind of comfort us. Rebellion and kind of this, this rebellious spirit towards authority is normal for us. A lack of joy is just kind of commonplace. I mean, we, we could go down this list forever. And, and here's my point. We are in great need of change. 
For the, for the anxious heart, for the person just riddled with anxiety, we're in great need of change. For the person that their calendar looks like literally an ink pen just blew up on it. Busyness just care. We are in great need of change. Okay, but, but here's the problem. Here's the third reason. Is it's not just an issue of we want it and need it. The issue is, and this is the problem for a lot of us, is we don't know what change looks like and how it comes about. That there is a general misunderstanding of change. I, I love how one author said it. He says, there's nothing more obvious than the need for change. Nothing is less obvious than what needs to change and how that change happens. You seeing the problem here? That there's a general agreement that we are in desperate need of change. Something is wrong with us. But then there's general disagreement on what that problem is. There's a lot of confusion on that. And listen, that's a cultural confusion. This is the reason you have self-help. And this is the reason that if you went and just sampled kind of the survey of self-help books, here's what you're going to find. More method to try to modify your behavior. Let's give me five steps. Let me give you five. You probably haven't thought of these five steps. Let me give you these five steps and kind of modify your external behavior and what you do. And, and this confusion that's in our culture about how change happens also has plagued the church. This is why most preaching sounds like self-help. This is the reason. It's because there's confusion on what brings about change. See, see, we've got this idea that what we need to change is our external behavior. So really what we need to do is come up with a new method. These five steps to get me free from anger. These five things to free me from pornography. So, so we've got all of these methods. And listen, methods are not bad in themselves. Methods are bad by themselves. You see this? See, as a church, if all we give is a method, if you've got a self-help book and all you've got is a new ideas to kind of modify your external behavior, if all we give is methods, we will always short-circuit change in people's lives. It will always be a temporary fix, like a band-aid on a gunshot wound. See, until we can get past methods, methods are good, just not good by themselves, until we can also give the man, Jesus, until we can give the Redeemer, the Savior, who can actually change our hearts, change will always be short-circuited. You see this? All this cultural confusion with change, this is what led Paul Tripp to say this about just kind of this cultural confusion with this issue. He said, our culture, and I would add it in there, our church, I think it's going to be up on the screen for you. Our culture and our churches abounds with hollow and deceptive theories on how change, on change that masquerades as biblical wisdom. So it looks like it's real biblical. I mean, we can, we can, like, we can give these points from the Bible, these five things that you should be doing to kind of modify your behavior. So, so it masquerades as, as biblical wisdom, often because they borrow some aspect of biblical truth, yet they are hollow because they miss the center of biblical wisdom, which is Christ. In some way, they allow the person to live independent of Christ and avoid the deep heart transformation that only Christ can bring about. I, this is the issue. Can I just tell you this? Let me just kind of cut straight to the cultural confusion. It is not good enough for us to hold up before you these methods. If we don't hold before you, Jesus is the only way you can change. See, if we give you methods without Jesus, you can never change. You don't have the power. You don't possess the potential to change by yourself. You can modify some of your behavior. You can kind of white knuckle it for a while. Like when your wife throws the fork at you, you can count to 10 and that will work for a little while. But you cannot change your heart. Are you with me on that? We need a savior to do that. 
We need Jesus to do that. That's why any way that we talk about change that misses Jesus misses lasting change. And reason number four. As a church, and this is just going to be real pastoral for us in here. As a church, we have to develop a vocabulary of change. For many of us in this room over the next few weeks, here's my hope for you is that God would give you new categories for how you think about people and how you think about your problems. Like what, what it is that is your problem. That God would give you new categories for that and that he would give you a new vocabulary for how you want to speak into that sin in your own life, like the problem in your own life and the problem in other people's life. That God would give us these new categories and a new vocabulary. This is essential for us. And let me tell you why this is essential. In their book, How People Change, Paul Tripp, Ted Lane, they they give six facts about every local church. Okay, this is all local churches, six facts. Let, Let me give you these six facts. Here's fact number one. There are people in church with a multitude of problems. Could we all agree with that? If we sampled around the room today, we would find a multitude of problems in you, in me, in us. Problems abound in this room this morning. Okay, so we've got people with a multitude of problems. Fact number two, the Bible says we have everything we need to help these people. Everything we need, it says we've got this. This is Second Peter 1, 3, that, that his divine power, Jesus, his divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness. So everything we need for change is in Jesus. Everything we need, it's, it's right there. Okay, this is what he's saying. Here's fact number three. So number one, multitude of problems. Number two, everything we need is in, in Jesus. We have it. Fact number three, people usually seek help first from a friend, family member, or pastor before going to a counselor. Here's what that means. That, that if you're a mom in this room, that you're not just a mom, you're also a mom that's a counselor. You know that? If you're a dad in the room, you're not just a dad. You're a dad who is also a professional counselor for your family. If you're a friend in this room, you're not just a friend. You're also a friend that is a professional counselor for all your friends around you. See, our our first instinct when we have a problem is to go to the people around us and say, this is the deal, what do you think? That's counseling. That's what that is in that moment. Next fact. So people usually go to friend, family member, pastor. Fact number four. These people, when they come to us, will get no help, bad help, or gospel-centered help from that friend, family member, or pastor. Do you see this? These are the only options. When somebody comes to you and says, I've got this problem, what do you think? You're going to give them no help, you're going to give them bad help, or you're going to give them gospel-centered help. Jesus is the solution. Those are the only three options. And let me ask you, what kind of help do you think you give people? Bad help, no help, or gospel-centered help? Jesus is the answer. Jesus is the solution. Okay, now it goes on. Fact number five. Two more of these. Fact number five. If people don't get meaningful help from you, from me, from their friends here, from the church, if they don't get meaningful help, here's what they'll do. They will look elsewhere for help. So this is why people are in Barnes and Noble looking for it. This is why, this is why they're there. This is why some of us will leave services like this, go to Barnes and Noble and find the best kind of self-help issue on time management, on whatever the issue is. This is why we do that. And last one, fact six. 
Fact number six. They will seek to help others with whatever they found to be helpful for them. You see this last piece? And this is why the stakes are so high with this. It's because we've got one of two options here. Either we will be option one, a place that centers on Jesus, lifts Jesus up and says, he is the answer. He is sufficient. Everything you need in his divine power, everything you need for life and godliness is there. Now we have to learn how to live in that and apply that to our life. See, we can be that sort of a church that lifts Jesus up and lifts a gospel-centered way of change up and says, that is your only way to have lasting change. Everything else is a band-aid you're going to put on the problem. Or we can be a church that, that says Jesus is sufficient as we all go on this restless search for, for substitute saviors, other means and methods to kind of change our life. You see, the, you see the issue here? This is vital for our church. It sets the atmosphere around our church. We'll either be a grace-centered church or we'll be a self-willed, let's white knuckle it, let's change behavior and just try harder and do better place. Okay, so let me show you this graph on the chart. This will kind of summarize my hopes for the next however many weeks we're in here. If you, if you kind of take a look at this chart, and let's just say this is what happens this morning. Let's say somebody came to you this morning after the service and said, I have got a serious anger problem. It's bad. It is, like before I left the house this morning, I punched a hole in the wall, headbutted the TV, screamed as loud as I could for five seconds. I mean, it's bad right now. Now stop right there. What are you going to say to that person? What's your counsel to them? See, here's our hope that God would set us on a trajectory where the gospel would not only come from pastors here, not only come in counseling situations here, but would also come through home group leaders here, what would also come through ministry and ministry leaders here, would also come from parents as they counsel their kids, and would also be the atmosphere. It's how we counsel one another. When your friend comes to you, it's how you speak about things. When my friend comes to me, it's how I speak about things. That we have the gospel, that Jesus is the solution. Jesus is underneath every problem we have. Jesus is what uproots it. That we would get Jesus throughout our church as the solution. Do you see this? This is what we're going for. This is our hope over the next few weeks. Okay, with that said, we're almost to Mark 7, okay? Um... A few years ago, and by the way, this, this is the goal for this morning. I just want to try to diagnose the problem for us so we all, when we leave here today, have an accurate understanding of this is the problem. That guy with anger just came to you. This is the problem. Diagnosis. Okay. A few years back, Laura and I got the chance to go to Europe. It was like one of those once-in-a-lifetime sort of a moments for us. We had free airline miles. The whole thing worked out perfect. We get to Europe. We start in Rome. I watched Gladiator like eight times in a row and then wanted to go fight a tiger in the Colosseum, right? I mean, I was ready to go. Then we went to a Florence and saw the David, a big naked man statue, right? I wish I could appreciate that more. I just can't, right? I saw it though. And so then we went to, uh, then we went to, uh, Venice. And I, all I'm thinking when we're in Venice is I've got like these scenes of Indiana Jones, you know, like the little wooden boat in the propeller, boats getting chewed. I've got that scene in my brain the whole time I'm, I'm in Venice. And all of a sudden, as I'm thinking Indiana Jones, it starts. It. Now, it started out like this. It started out, um, it's seven o'clock and I'm like, well, I don't really feel that well. I'm going to bed. 
It's seven. I'm going to bed, right? We're in Venice, seven o'clock. I'm going to bed. Sleep all night, wake up the next day. And uh, now we, we are going to Milan. It's, it's last supper day. That's what we're about to see in Milan, right? And all of a sudden as we're on this train to Milan, we get there. It turned from, I need to sleep for a while to, Lord, I'm not sure when this happened or how this happened, but somebody snuck up and stabbed me like right in the stomach. I know you can't like see a wound there. Like you don't have a knife right there. You can't see a puncture wound. Somebody stabbed me right there. It turned in for, or it turned from, I need sleep to, I can't stand up straight. Like it turned into, like it reacquainted me really quickly to the horrors of dry heaving. My new hobby was puking, right? I mean, th- this was the deal. And listen, this is not like in the confines of your home. You've got a lot of freedom there. You can be loud. You can do whatever you want to there, right? This is on public transportation, a bus. I'm in the seat dry heaving in a bag over here, right? That is embarrassing. I don't care how you cut it, right? So th- this is what it turned into. So um, the next day, we're, we're to be in uh, Switzerland, Interlaken. By the time we get to Switzerland, it had turned into, I can't stand up. I'm barfing everywhere on everyone all the time. That, that, that's, that's life for me to, my number one goal now is not to stop puking. My number one goal now is to survive the next second. That, that was my goal. And so it had now turned into literally, I thought it was going to, it was going to kill me. Like I, I was to that point. And, and Laura just, man, just trying to be a good wife and just love on me. Literally is like, I'm not letting you die here. We're going to the doctor. Now this is where like the normal me would be like, Laura, I know that it looks like I'm about to die, but seriously, I've got this handled, right? And that was not me here. I was ready to go to the doctor, right? And so I get to the doctor. It's like 10 PM at night. Uh, Laura arranges, gets this doctor there. And now think about what happens in this doctor's room. The most important thing he's got to do is diagnose the problem, right? This is the most important thing the doctor has to do in this moment. So I come in, I can't stand up straight. My new hobby is puking, right? I've got a knife that's lodged in my like stomach somewhere. Like this is my problem. His most important thing he can do is diagnose the problem, right? So, so he, he could have given diagnosis like this. Um, I think the problem is you're a sissy. Now, I'm pretty sure in that moment, I would have been a murdering sissy, right? But, but that could have been his thing. He could have said, he, this could have been his solution. Um, solution for you is, a hey, suck it up, take some Tylenol, sleep it off. You're all right, right? So now think about this. This is why it's so important to give the right diagnosis, because your solution is dependent upon your diagnosis. Accurate diagnosis equals appropriate solution. If you get a bad diagnosis, you've got an inappropriate solution. I, it, he, he could have said, um, you know, I, I really think pain's your problem. So, so why don't we do that? This is nothing morphine can't fix. So why don't we give you some morphine? Go home. You're good to go, right? We'll mask this forever. You're, you're fine. Pain, but he didn't do that. Here, here's what he did. I walk in. First thing he does is a blood test. And then he starts poking around on my stomach and does this little weird test that I literally I thought it almost killed me. After like the knife and the can't stand all that, I thought it killed me too, right? And so and he looks at me straight in the eyes and he says, Rodney, your appendix is about to rupture. You're two and a half days into this and I know you're on vacation. This isn't really what you want to hear and it wasn't at all. We we're supposed to be parasailing like the next day and so, or paragliding. And so um, he looks at me and says, your, your appendix is the problem. He says, get in my car right now. We're going to the hospital. 
on vacation in Switzerland and we're taking your appendix out. See, here's the deal though. Accurate diagnosis equals appropriate solution. See, when you think about this guy that com- comes up to you and he's got an anger problem, well, what's his problem? That's the question. What is this guy's issue? Like, why is it that he's punching a hole through the wall? Is it his circumstances? I mean, is it his wife? Is it a roommate problem? Like, what's the deal here? I mean, is it circumstances? Is it, does he just need maybe some behavior modification? Does he need to learn the art and technique of counting to 10? Is that what he needs to do? Like, what is his problem? And listen, if you're thinking anything other, when you think diagnosis, when you think what is his problem, if you've got any thought other than the problem is his heart, then you have missed the diagnosis. Okay, now in Mark 7, this is what Jesus is getting at. In Mark 7, here's the, the context here. You've got the Pharisees. They're upset at the disciples of Jesus. Why? Because they're not externally complying to their rules. They're not washing their hands. So they're upset about this. They're not keeping their traditions. The disciples are breaking these laws, right? So in verse 14, um, Jesus gives them this parable. It's not anything that's going to come into you from the outside that's going to defile you. It's what's inside of you that comes out. That's the issue. And then his disciples, when you get to verse 18, they're like, listen, you need to break this down like a fourth grade reading level for us. We don't get what you're saying. Okay, now this is what Jesus does in verse 18. Here's what Jesus says. And he said to them, here's, here's fourth grade reading level for you disciples. He said to them, then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from the outside cannot defile him? Verse 19, since it enters not his heart, but his stomach and, and is expelled. Verse 20, and he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. Now look at verse 21, 22, and 23. For from, I want you to circle this word, within, from within. And then he explains what within is. Out of the heart of man. That's what it means when he says within, out of the heart. You might underline that phrase, out of the heart. Come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. Verse 23, all these evil things, anger, I just punched a wall. Right? All these evil things come from, you might circle this word, within. And they defile the person. Jesus, as a good doctor, is looking at his disciples and saying, listen, this is the diagnosis. This is the issue. This is the core problem. You've got a lot of problems, but this is the problem. The core of the issue is your heart. That's it. Your heart is the problem. That's what he's telling them here. This is the diagnosis. Okay, so I want to spend the rest of our time just kind of unpacking this idea of the heart for you. First of all, we'll we'll track through this. That what is the heart? Like how does the Bible define the heart? The heart defined. It's used over 900 times in the Bible. 66 books, 900 times. That would probably tell you that the heart is a pretty important concept biblically, right? If it's used 900 times, 900 times, this is what the heart means biblically. The heart is the source inside of us from which all actions flow. Okay, if you want to write that down, get that in your mind, you need to to make sure that that lands on you somewhere. The heart is the source inside of us from which all of our actions flow. It's the reason that you do what you do. Like this is the heart. The heart is the, the control center, the driver of your life. The heart is this, this, 
inner you. It's the real you. This is why Proverbs 27, 19 says, as water reflects a man's face, so a man's heart reflects a man. The heart is you. It makes up all the internal workings of you. The heart encompasses things like your mind, like how you think, how you interpret, meaning, memories, judgment, discernment. Your, your heart encompasses the mind. Your, your mind, how you think, is one part of your heart. Uh, you, the heart is also your affections. What you long for, what you desire, what you hope for. See, this is what, this is how we normally use it in, in kind of Western culture. This is why when a guy breaks up with a girl, she says, he broke my heart, right? She's not saying he broke my mind. She's saying, man, I had these longings for him and, and he crushed that. See, it's these affections, these longings, these emotions, these feelings. All of that is part of the heart, but it's also the will. That the heart is the reason you do what you do. It's how, when you line up all the options, your heart is what says, you know what, I'm going to take that one. Your heart is where all of that comes from. Your heart is the reason you do what you do. It's the source inside of you from which all of your actions flow. This is why Proverbs 4.23 says this. That, that this idea of keeping your heart with all diligence, for out of it flows the wellspring of life, flows the spring of life. Your heart is the spring of life inside of you that determines all of your actions. Are we tracking so far? This is the heart defined. Okay, now what Jesus is saying in Matthew 7, or Mark 7, he's giving a radical diagnosis to all of our external problems, all of our behavioral problems. He is giving the diagnosis of it. And here's what Jesus is saying, that the problem is your heart. Your heart is your problem. Are we tracking with that? Your heart is your problem. Look at what he says here again in verse 21. For from within, out of the heart of man, all these evil things flow, right? Out of the heart of man, all these things flow from the heart. This is what he's saying here. Okay, so, so track with this. We aren't sinners because we sin. We sin because we are sinners. We sin. This is the problem of our heart. Our heart is bent away from God. This is what theologians call total depravity. That doesn't mean that you're as bad as you could be, that's utter depravity. Total depravity is that sin has affected every part of your heart. Sin has it, gotten in there. It's been away from God. It, it's distorted its desires. This is the problem with every one of you. You know what? Your heart problem and my heart problem, it's hereditary. It comes from Genesis chapter 3. This is where it all begins when our first parents, Adam and Eve, they sinned against God. And from that point forward, that sin nature was passed to you and I. It's inescapable. We can't avoid this. This is why like in a Psalms 51, David says um, this as he's being born. He says, behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. He is saying that when I was a baby, came out of the womb, my heart was the problem. It, it was the issue. It was brought forth in iniquity, a bit against God. This is why in Genesis 6, when when the writer of, of Genesis looked at the situation, he says that God looked at the evil intentions of people's hearts, how, how they were inclined to evil all of the time. This is the problem of our heart. They are bent away from God. This is why Jeremiah, he's going to say that your heart is desperately wicked. That, that's your heart. See, the heart of the problem is your heart. And this problem is hereditary. It affects every one of us. Okay, so let me give you some implications of what this means. Three implications. Basically, three ways of saying the same thing, but just in different ways. Way number one. 
Our problem, our primary problem is inside of us. It's not outside of us. Your primary problem is you, not them, not it. We track in there. Your primary problem is your heart. This is what Jesus is saying in Matthew 7. For from within, all these things come. Okay, another way of saying this, implication. Our primary problem isn't our circumstances. Our primary problem is not our circumstances. See, and this is what self-help and most counseling wants to convince you of. That your problem is that your dad didn't love you enough growing up. That your problem is that you you were raised in poverty. This is why you spend like you do. Your problem is your wife's not treating you very well, so you get angry. See, your problem is them. It's not you. That's what self-help counseling wants to tell you. But this is God's devastating critique of that. He looks at that and says, no, the problem is not them. The primary problem is you. You're the problem. I'm the problem. Our heart is the issue. That it's desperately wicked. It is bent away from God. And see, this is what makes it so tough is that we like to blame other people for our sin, right? I mean, it's a lot easier to blame them for our actions than us for our actions. You see this all throughout the Bible. In Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve sinned, God calls them out. What does Adam do? God, it was her fault. And actually, you gave me her, so it's your fault. You remember Exodus 32 where Aaron, he makes this golden calf? Moses calls him out and is upset about the situation. You know, you remember what Aaron says? Hey, you know these people, they made me do it. And then he says this about it. I just threw the, threw the gold in the fire, it came out a calf. I mean, it's a miracle. I mean, that is God at work there. He made the calf for me. I didn't have to touch the thing. See how easy it is for us to blame other people? Now listen to this statement really carefully. Your circumstances are not the cause of your sin. They are the occasion of your sin. You getting that? Your circumstances do not cause your sin. They are the occasion of your sin. Listen to these words by Paul Tripp. He says, here's the humbling truth. Trials do not cause us to be what we have not been. You see that? Trials do not cause you to be what you have not been. Rather, they reveal what we have been all along. We see that? It's what trials do. It's what our circumstances, they, they reveal you. Like when your wife makes you mad and you go off the handle, that reveals you, not her. He says, the harvest the trial produces is the result of the roots already in our heart. See that? Your problem is not your circumstances. Your your problem is, is the heart. Maybe you could think of it this way. And listen, whenever people throw like the circumstances thing out there, it's a half truth. It's not that it's totally bad. It's just a half truth. I, I think this would be a good way for you to think about circumstances and your heart. Your heart is the problem, but your circumstances form these train tracks that give your heart great a great roadway to run on. You see that? But your problem is your heart. Your heart is the engine in that train that moves it down the track. Your circumstances just create a beautiful track for that train to run smoothly on. But the problem is your heart. Are we, are we there? The diagnosis is the heart. This is what Jesus is doing here. Let, let me give you one more to go along with this. Third implication. Our primary problem isn't our behavior. That's not our primary problem. Our our primary problem is not that we're angry. Our primary problem is not that we're addicted to pornography. Our primary problem is not that that, that we get frustrated and that we're impatient and that our marriage is falling apart and our calendar is so big. Our primary problem is not 
our behavior. Our primary problem is our heart. See, what the Pharisees wanted to do is they wanted to, they, they wanted to have all these external rules, all, all kind of these things that would, would come around them and, and make them look good, kind of all these behavior modification things, while the problem was not their behavior. The problem was their heart was not connected to their good behavior. You see that? That the problem is their heart. It's not in their behavior. Maybe you could think of it this way. Why is it that you sin? Answer. You sin because your heart is not trusting and treasuring Jesus. It's trusting and treasuring something else. That's why you sin. Because you are looking and you are trust, you're looking to something else for your satisfaction. You're worshiping something else. This is idolatry language here. You're trusting and treasuring something else. That's why we sin. This is the heart of the problem. See, in, in our, in the moment of sin, the, the, the problem is not behavior. The problem is a battle and a war going on for your affections. For what are you going to love most and treasure most? See, in the, Nobody makes you sin. Are we all aware of that? Nobody has ever stuck a, 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 you know, a gun to your head and said, you need to get angry. You do it because you want to. You do it because your heart longs for this. You do it because it is violating. Somebody violated an idol that you're trusting in and treasuring. And when that happens, everything in you want to defend that. Everything in you wants to explode to make sure that thing is protected. See, see, when we sin in the moment of sin, it's not an issue of behavior. It's an issue of longing, of affection, of desire. See, that's the problem with our heart. Okay, third, third big statement here. Heart defined. The diagnosis of the heart. Number three. The heart is God's primary concern. And I want to make sure you get this, that the heart is God's primary concern. So let me say it in two ways. Number one, good behavior is not God's agenda. God's agenda is not for you to act a certain way, do a certain thing, kind of check off these boxes, make sure all these things, that is not God's agenda for your life. If you think about the disciples, think about them in comparison to the Pharisees. They were jokes compared to the Pharisees. The Pharisees are the ones who had life together. They're the ones that were reading their Bible. They're the ones that were memorizing scripture. They're the ones that were fasting. They're the ones that were praying. They were the ones in the church. They were the ones serving in the church. They were the ones volunteering in the church. They were the ones giving. They were the ones doing all of these things and behaving they far outpaced everyone. But do you know who Jesus reserved his harshest words for? The good behaving Pharisees. Look what he says in Mark chapter seven, verse six and seven. Back up a couple of verses there. You see what he says? This people, you, you honor me with your lips, but your heart is far from me. In vain do you worship me, teaching his doctrines, the commandments of men. He is saying, all of this worship that you give me, this lip service, it means nothing to me. All of your good behavior means nothing. This is why God in Isaiah chapter 1, he looks at the people of Israel and he says, all of your fasting, all, when you gather together as a, as a corporate group of people, all of the sacrifices you do, all of that, it nauseates me. It stinks to me. And you know why? Because your heart's not connected to me. You see this, that God is not only concerned with your behavior. That is not God's primary agenda in your life. Matthew chapter 23, verse 25. Listen to these words of Jesus. 
Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup. Your behavior looks great. You clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisees. First, clean the inside of the cup and the plate that the outside also may be clean. Verse 27, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. Do you see this? Behavior modification is not God's primary agenda. It reminds me of this story of the the little guy that was with his mom in church. And in the middle of the sermon, he decided, you know what? I'm ready to stand up. I'm getting in my seat. I'm standing up. So he, he stands up in his seat. And at that moment, his mom does what most good moms would do, right? They look over at, or she looked over at that boy and said, I am gonna kill you. Sit down, right? I mean, she gives the look of death his way. He sits down. I mean, obediently, right? I mean, he's in, he's down, he's, he's doing everything she asks. A minute or two later, later, he writes her a note, passes it over to her, and he says, hey, but I want you to know I'm standing up on the inside, right? <laughs> Do you see this? See, this is what the Pharisees were doing. They, they were obeying all of these commands, but they were standing up on the inside. This is why Jesus is not primarily concerned with your external behavior, because you can behave all day long and your heart be far from him. Okay, let me say this in another way, the positive way, that God is primarily concerned with your heart. God's agenda is a change of your heart. This is what God is about. This is what God is doing. And you see this all throughout the New Testament. You, you see this in Matthew 22, where Jesus is going to say, he's asked the question, what's the greatest commandment? His response in Matthew 22, love me with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love me entirely out of your heart, affections, your will, your, your, your mind. Love me with everything in you. So this is the consistent thing in the scriptures. You go back to the Old Testament, 1 Samuel um, 16. Do you remember the story where Samuel is going to anoint a new king? He, he lines up Jesse's sons. And he meets the first one and, and he's thinking, man, this, I, I know kings. This is a king. I mean, he looks good, is good. I mean, he's handsome. He's all that. This is what a king looks like. And you remember what God's response to him is? He says, but the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or at the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. God is primarily concerned with your heart. This is the issue. Now, okay, this is what scares me for so many of us, that we live in a culture that is consumed with the externals. And you are a part of a church culture, just by nature of living in the Bible Belt, that is consumed with external action, behavior, modification, without any regard for the heart. As long as you do these things, as long as you come to church, as long as you tithe, as long as you give, as long as you serve, as long as you're doing all of these things, we're satisfied, we're good, and we never ask questions of the heart. But can I just tell you this morning, God sees right through your behavior, right through mine. He he is going after the heart. You know why he's going after the heart? Because if he's got the heart, he's got all of you. I'll never forget... um, hearing this illustration from a guy named uh, Donald Barnhouse. He was the pastor of 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia. And he was asked the question, if, if Satan really had his way and his, his thing here, um, what do you think he would do in Philadelphia? Now listen to his response. I'm paraphrasing here. This is his response. All of the bars would be closed, pornography and prostitution banished, the streets pristine, 
filled with tidy pedestrians, no swears, only yes sirs and no ma'ams. And churches would be full every Sunday where Christ is not preached and Christ is not cherished. And you know what concerns me so much for churches in the Bible Belt? Is I think we're satisfied with that, with or without Jesus. You know what concerns me about a lot of our parenting? I think we're satisfied with good behavior, with or without Jesus. Our marriages, we're satisfied with a good marriage, with or without Jesus. God is not satisfied with or without Jesus. It's only with Jesus. See, faith is only true faith when it's faith in Jesus. Affectionate for Jesus. Obedience is only true obedience when it's directed at Jesus and, and overflows from a heart that loves and longs for Jesus. True Christianity is, is, is a religion of the heart. It's a religion of, I love God. I want God. It, it's Psalms 42.1, as the deer pants for the water, so my heart pants after God. That's what it is. This is what God's concerned with. Does your heart long for him? Do you love him? Are your affections for him? And what concerns me is so many people come in and out, do the church thing, check the church box, all of this with no affection for God. Last thing, number four, and then we'll get good news and go home. Number four, and this is really the bad news, is that you possess no power to change your heart. You can't change your heart. It is outside of your pay grade. You don't have the skill set. You don't have the power or the potential to change what you long for and what you love. You can't do that. You can modify your behavior. You can learn to count the tension, kind of manage your anger, but you cannot get to the root of your heart. You cannot change it. You can't do it. And we'll finish with this. This is the great news of the gospel, that God changes hearts. Amen? This is the great news of the gospel, that in the gospel, we who were rebellious against God, dead in our sin, that God makes us new, that God refashions, remakes, re reorients, ref I mean, he, he reforms our hearts toward him. He gives us a longing for him, a desire for him. See, this is what being a Christian is. A Christian is not behavior modification. A Christian is, I love Jesus. That's what a Christian is. It is somebody that's had the total inside of their life renovated, remade. This is what it means in 2 Corinthians 5.17 when it says that anyone who is in Christ is a new creation. All the old is gone, the new is here. That you have been given a new heart. This is the prophecy of Ezekiel when he says, there's going to be a day coming where I'm going to take their heart of flesh out, this, this heart of stone out, and I'm going to give them this soft, moldable, new, reformed heart. See, the good news of the gospel is that sin has ruined us, but Jesus restores us. He gives us a new heart. This is the great news that the gospel is specifically targeted for the heart, not your behavior. The gospel continually goes after who you are on the inside, remaking and reshaping that. So God changes our heart, and here's the great news of the gospel, that God keeps our heart. He not only gives us a new one, but he's the one that keeps it. So this is the great news of the gospel. It's not just that he makes us new, but that we are indwelled by the Holy Spirit. He, that God actually lives in us, sustaining all that he has started. 
So the good news of the gospel is we've got a new power and a new way of change, that we have got Jesus, that we have got God working in us and for us, that what he started, he will bring to completion. See, this is the great thing about the Holy Spirit, and this is where we're going to go for the rest of the series. This is how change happens. You know what the Holy Spirit does in you? Primary role of the Holy Spirit. This is it. It's a floodlight ministry in the words of J.I. Packer. The Holy Spirit stands in between you and, and Jesus, and he shines a light on Jesus so that your heart can be captured by all the beautiful and breathtaking rays of all that Jesus is for you and has done for you. That is how change happens. It's doesn't, you don't change by me saying you need to do this. We change as we start to see and savor all that God has done for us and to us. Amen? This is the hope. Let's pray. The heart's the issue. That's, that's the diagnosis. It's your problem. It's my problem. And, and let me just give you this practical kind of take home today. And this week as you're living life, stop blaming other people for your sin. Start asking this question. Why is my heart doing this? Like, why am I behaving that way? What, what am I, what am I believing about? What, what am I trusting and treasuring that's not Jesus to make me behave like, like this? What is the heart problem that I have? And our hope over the next few weeks is to help develop a vocabulary for you, for you to be able to preach truth to yourself, the gospel to yourself, and for you to be able to communicate it to other people. So, so what is behind that behavior? What, what, what's wrong with your heart as you respond in all these different ways? And take home number two. Pray that God would make Jesus beautiful to you. That he would make Jesus breathtaking to you. Can I just say that's the only way you will change? That's the only way lasting change occurs. Jesus becomes beautiful. See, I can give you all the objective truths that you want. I can lay them down over your life all day long. And it will just produce Pharisees. Just kind of change the behavior while you're standing in your heart. What starts to change and renovate is when we look at Jesus and say, breathtaking, beautiful. I, I, I see, I see what you've done, who you are, what you are for me, what you've done to me. I, I see it, I, I savor that. As the deer pants for the water, I'm running after that. I desire that, I love you. So God, help us in that. We need great help from you. In your good name we pray. Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church, located in Midlothian, Texas. For service times, additional audio and study resources, as well as information about our church, please visit us at stonegate-church.com.